0: Are you developing IoT solutions? Get ready for tomorrow with Farnell, supporting your design journey from connecting smart sensors to the cloud to implementing AI. Find everything you need at farnell.com. Enjoy this episode with Farnell, a global distributor of electronic products and solutions.
1: So, welcome to a, another episode of Beta Talk. And today I'm joined by um, Tom Lote tom's twitter handle i think is the real tom low is that is, have i got that right tom yes that's it? right yeah. yeah so we're gonna have an interesting conversation with tom because he's got this really broad interesting um sort of uh outlook on decarbonisation of heat because he's worked with british gas he's worked with bulb he's worked with uh off uh, off what which is obviously more sort of the plumbing side of things um and he's now set up a trade association so we've got lots and lots and lots of things to talk about so i suppose the first thing tom is what's this trade association you've set up
0: well great thanks uh, thanks, thanks for having me on um, so yeah thermal storage uk it's a new trade association we set it up at the end of march this year um it's representing three british companies at the moment um who all offer smart uh, thermal storage um, some of the people listening to the podcast may have, may know the, the company. So Caldera, Tepio, and Sunamp are the founding members. Um, and we're you know part of the conversation on electrifying heat. So uh, you know, how do you electrify heat at lowest cost? And we're involved in all sorts of conversations around things like flexibility and of the, of the electricity system, making sure that you can install these products and so that they run at you know, good cost and um, that there's good flexible tariffs for people to, to benefit from, um, and you know, talking to other trade associations about the consumer journey, because as we decarbonize heat, it probably needs to be a better journey than perhaps we've had on the, uh, the, the gas boiler side perhaps over the last you know, 5 to 10, 15 years or so.
1: Definitely, we can we can learn from a lot of mistakes there. So, just for my listeners, uh, if you've not or if you're not familiar with those names, you, we've got um, Sanamp, who who um, makes a, a product using phase change material, and then we've got Tepio, and I, can't, I can I never pronounce it very well. Uh, Calidra, have I got that right, Tom? Cal- Caldera, Caldera, that's it. Who who use warm stone technology, and we'll probably talk a, a little bit um, more about that. So, you you start. Have I got this right? So. In industry or within industry, you kind of started at British Gas, did you? Or you were involved with British Gas?
0: Uh, My my first role was actually working at Consumer Focus, which eventually merged into Citizens Advice. So it was a consumer organisation. And that's generally actually been the the sort of common thread all the way through what I've done is uh, thinking about how do you make the energy sector more consumer friendly, um, and uh, make sure energy suppliers do the right thing, um, and also make sure that their products are you know good for good for customers and good for the environment. So I went to British Gas in 2010 um, to essentially try and make their their non domestic business um, you know fairer. I think would be the, the short short version of it.
1: Mm. And then you then you were, uh, were involved with Offgem, sort the, of an innovation consultant for Offgem. Is that right?
0: Yeah, after about seven years of working at British Gas, I guess I got the seven-year itch and um, took some time out. And after uh, a summer off, um, started looking around. And um, Offgem at, at that point set up the Innovation Link team, um, which was a great initiative. Um, still going; um, they've been running it now for about five, six years. And the idea is that you, as a as a innovator, you can go and speak to Offgem and get advice on what your product, you know where it fits into the energy system, whether there's any potential barriers you might not be aware of. Um, and that could be everything from off-gem rules to sort of physical problems on the grid. Um, so it was really good because it was offering that advice to people who wouldn't have the funding to go and get uh, you know, advice from, from elsewhere, but also encouraging um, you know, people to try new things and look at things in a different way rather than having the sort of same sort of at old energy suppliers.
1: Uh, now I might put you on the spot and ask you about off gym in a bit later, but um, <laughs> um, oh, and energy supplies. So another supplier you were involved in was with Bulb, have I got that right?
0: Yeah, I joined Bulb in December 2019 as their, uh, it was a maternity cover role, so I was um, head of risk and regulation, um, and then was there also working on, uh, well later on sort of operations, so I was the, the head of industry operations, which in cover, covered things like warm discount, uh, the energy company obligation
1: um, and faster switching as well. Oh, another favourite topic of mine, the energy company obligation, otherwise known as ECO. Yeah. <laughs> now, you're, you're renowned for being very optimistic, so I might put you on the spot, but I realise, you know, you've, uh, well, I'm optimistic, actually. I, I just tend to sort of uh, say things in a different manner, I suppose. So, so the, what, made you, what made you want to sort of engender this trade association around thermal storage?
0: So, I think some of it's from personal experience. So, I, I basically spent, I think there's probably two drivers. So, two, about two years ago, me and my wife bought a house up in Leeds, which is where I'm speaking to you from. So, we live on the outskirts of Leeds. It's an old Victorian terraced house, and it's had basically no work done to it for 50, 60 years. All the windows are original, you know, sash wood windows, single glazing. It isn't, when we bought it, it was uh, EBCE. And we're, we've gradually been doing work on it to get it up to EBCD and it'll be EBCC I think by the end of the, end of the year um, and that experience was unbelievably hard <laughs> it was really difficult to know who to go and speak to what to go and do there's loads of really great people and companies and organizations out there you know doing an excellent pieces of the puzzle but the end-to-end journey as a consumer requires you to be pretty motivated um, if you're going to try and do the right thing and, uh, and decarbonize um, so I started Basically, reading lots and lots of different books and articles, and speaking to people, and got quite interested and passionate about heat decarbonisation, and that was part of the reason why I took that industry operations role job at Bull because I would have been, in, you know, I was in charge of the energy company obligations, so you know, energy efficiency a big part of it. Um, so that's certainly one part. I think the other part for me was realizing about five, six years ago when I was at Offgem that after seven or eight years working in energy, I didn't really ever think about the engineering of the system. Um, I was thinking very much in terms of economic models and incentives and frameworks and kind of forgetting that there was an actual system that needed to run. I kind of felt that was somebody else's problem. But of course, you can't design good good policy and strategy unless you understand the physics and the chemistry that underpins the whole system and that might sound naive to some of the people who who listen to this podcast but that sort of realization five six years ago completely changed how I looked at the energy system and my role within it and what I could do and what I could bring because you know quite rightly heating engineers aren't economists um but I you know I do think there's a role where you need to try and work across the the policy bit into the heating bit and um that's kind of one of the reasons why when I was speaking to the, the members and they were saying to me, look, we, we don't think thermal storage is getting enough airtime. We think that it's, something, it's a technology that's going to be really important to the grid. But, you know, we haven't got the capacity, the time to hire people to go and work on this full time um, ourselves. Would you like to do it for us through a trade association? So that's where the trade association came from.
1: Yeah, it's interesting who does sort of get quite a, a louder voice, isn't it? I mean, obviously, the heat pump industry, um, and, and you know, kind of rightly so. I'm, I'm a supporter of them. Um, everyone that listens to this podcast knows I support um, solar thermal. They don't tend to get a very big voice. Um, suppliers do. Um, you know, suppliers seem to get a very, very big voice. And I wouldn't always say they're, they're right because they're suppliers. They're still working out the engineering problems and challenges themselves. That's a new industry. I mean, you you said before how there's sort of like these 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 um there's these engineering challenges on the sort of the generation side and then there's the engineering challenge on the heat side, isn't there? And there's sort of we we are seeing evidence of them sort of merging together and working together, aren't we?
0: Yeah, I think I think that's probably one of the biggest um Changes that's going to happen over the next few years because we've already seen it to some extent with transport so you know the concept of charging up an electric car you're mixing the power system with something that was completely outside of the energy sector previously it was sort of dealt with by the you know the oil and the, the petrol companies so you know, they were sort of separate from everything else. But with heating, in particular, you've actually got the same players involved. So if you think of you know, uh, you know British Gas, Octopus, EDF, whatever, they are supplying gas to your home, and sometimes they'll be providing you with additional services like insurance and you know safety checks and everything else on your, on, on those products. But if it all goes onto, the sing- onto a single system, that's a very different world. If you have a uh, the power system doing transport and doing heat and doing the existing stuff it does today, like you know, the lights and the computers that we're using right now, the heat demanding, you know, the, the power demand increase you get from that extra uh, heat demand um, is something we'll need to think through. How do we do at lowest cost? And how do you make sure that the engineering part of that works with the policy bit and the incentives and ultimately delivers a good experience for the consumer? because as a normal person, you would think I'm going to put a new heating system in. I want it to be warm. That's that will be your driving factor. It won't be. I need to make sure I give flexibility to my local distribution network operator or national grid. Like some people will think like that, but they're going to be really in the minority, and they'll probably be listening to this podcast. Um, you know, it's not going to be you know a Tom Tom Dick and Harry on the street. So. That's the bit I think we need We need to try and have the conversation ourselves within the sector. It's making sure people on the heating side understand what's needed on the power side and the power people understand what's needed on the heating side, which is why you know, uh, maybe a call-out for someone. I think you were involved in, the Pathways for Local Heat Delivery report that came out yesterday. One thing that was really promising there was that you were one of the uh, people involved in that. You were, I think, a witness. Sounds a very grand term. But you, you were a witness to that report, so it's good that they're getting your expertise because... I don't see how you can write a report on the future of the heating system uh, for you know for the UK without speaking to people like you.
1: Yeah, I, I saw that Michael uh, Lebryk tweet because he was part of that policy commission, and um, I, I actually haven't seen it yet. Have you, have you Have you seen it yet or gone through it? But. Um... Yeah, they're, I had a look through yeah. it yesterday.
0: Um, it's, a, it's a good report. There's some good stuff in there, um, things on things like trial errors for electrified heat and reforming high energy performance certificates work. There's some, there's some good stuff in there.
1: Well, I did my usual thing and <laughs> I probably went in all guns blazing, but um, i probably do that for a reason. I think the industry or, or that part of the sort of it does need a bit of a shake-up. It does need some of that kind of, you know, I definitely do not know everything. I, I don't know anything about policy. You know, I know people very well within policy. We've had people like Guy on and and Matthew Aylock from from Bayes, but it's it's a different world to me. But I I need them to understand our world, you know, the engineering world, the the hands-on world, because there there is a big gap. You can see it in past papers and reports. There's a big, big gap um, of what's actually going on out in the real world and what needs to go on on, on in the real, real world. Uh, well, and actually, funny enough,
0: that um, so people you mentioned there, so you know, Matt and Guy are both really good examples of people who are trying to come at this from a policy perspective. That's like where not, their natural background is, but they are trying to understand the eating world. And I mean, ultimately, I think that's all you can really ask of the policy people like they need to go and engage and speak to people like you, they're never going to be. You know, experts on heating systems. I don't think that would be a reasonable ask of those people creating the policy frameworks. Like, you don't want heating engineers being expert policy designers. I don't think that's necessary either. Mm-hmm. But they need to be able to have a conversation. And I you think know, it's great that people like you know Guy and Matt have been on this uh, on this as well. Um, and actually, I might just mention because um, I, I felt like it was a good, good opportunity to sort of publicly apologise. Um, there's, there's another Matt at uh, Energy Systems Catapult a guy called Matt Lipson, who's really really good. really knows his stuff, and. He actually came to me when I was at Ofgem about five years ago and said, I think what we need to do is think about heat as a service. We, don't, we shouldn't just think about it as kilowatt hours. That sort of misses the point of what heat actually is. And about five years ago, I sort of liked the concept understood sort of where it was coming from. We provided some advice at Ofgem on like, you know, the barriers that they might have to overcome if they were to pursue it. We didn't really champion it very much. We sort of thought it was a bit of a distraction. I think, because that's why I felt like. There was other things we were working on and trying to change how the regulations work to make heat, uh, you know, make them work for heat regulation. Just wasn't a big part of our thinking at that time. And I think I got it wrong. I think in hindsight, I would have liked to champion Matt's work a bit more because. People do think of you know they they want to be warm. They you know ultimately they don't care about a lot of the other stuff. Um, They don't care whether it's in kilowatt hours or whether it's in Celsius. Um, All they know is they want to be warm. And um, I think yeah, Matt Matt was right on that point. So uh, he's still the energy systems cap still working guy
1: and still still promoting. I talk I talk with Matt quite a lot. He's been I think he's been on this show twice actually. Um, We might might be listening then. (laughs) I think I've. pinpointed him to a good engineer because talk talking about um, guy knew him, whether he'll know heating he, he should know it quite well soon because i've got one of the best engineers i know in the london area putting a heating system in for him right now as we speak he's actually there now because i've just been talking to him on whatsapp and that won't right. be an ordinary heat pump system that'll be a superb heat pump system so yeah so uh, and we'll probably i'll probably do a bit of a report on it and, and i'm sure guy he has a blog site he'll be doing a bit of a report on it and um, I know the manufacturer will probably be doing it because it's quite a high level install. and It, it is a good one. So um, when, when as an association, once again, I don't know lots about associations. Do you get to go like everyone else does to sort of govern and put your case forward? And, and other people call it lobbying, don't they? But, but put your case forward and represent your um, your members? Yeah, so...
0: I think, I mean, there is an element of, of you know, engaging with government speak, but I think it's broader than that. So the way we we approach things, um, I think what I'll describe now is true for all trade associations, but it's certainly true for us. We we will speak to a variety of different people. We'll speak to government, so that's more, plenty more than one department, you know, the Department for Business is obviously the main one because I own um, the decarbonisation of heat agenda. But you, know, you also have to speak to the, the Department for Housing because they own things like SAP and EPC. That sits, sits with them. They also own building regulations. Um, so that's you know, a really important part of, of this journey. Um, we speak to Treasury because there are taxes and things which in some cases don't quite work for thermal storage. So you know, we want to try and make sure there's a good level playing field on decarbonised heat options. We'll speak to Offgem, um, who you know, need to make sure that they're thinking about the future of heat regulation. And there's an interesting question as to whether we should have a heat regulator, because um, we don't really have that today. We've got an electricity and gas regulator, but uh, they're fairly agnostic as to what you actually do with that electricity and gas. And perhaps we actually, if we had a heat regulator, that would be a slightly different. Uh, they have a different angle on some of these questions. Um, we also speak to people like national grids and the distribution network operators. And then we speak to other trade associations. So I've taken a decision pretty early on that we will be very open with other trade associations about what we're saying. So they may they may disagree with some of the points we're going to make to government, but they'll know what we're saying. If they want to go and say something different, they can. But I'd rather they knew what we were saying, because ultimately, I think everybody's coming at this from the point of view of trying to get to net zero at lowest cost and making sure people get good systems. Uh, which actually keep them warm, and you know we end up building something that's resilient um, for the next sort of 30, 40 years. Um, so I think if everyone's coming at it with that angle, um, I'd rather say to someone, before I go and speak to the government, by the way, this is what we're going to say to government, another trade association might say, oh yeah, we made that point three years ago, or they might say, what you've said actually isn't right. Did you not realise this thing? Because I, don't, I'm, I obviously don't know everything, and there's things I'll learn from other people. So that, that's the approach we take. We, we speak very openly. Um, you know, I'm happy sharing on this podcast. You know, the sort of things we talk to government about and who we speak to, um, because it's not a dark art. Like it's what we do, What you're doing is you're trying to explain and help government civil servants. Who are sat in you know, places like London or you know, increasingly outside you know, Manchester and Leeds and places like that, um, who don't have that detailed expertise. They've got the sort of political power because they need to get a decision from a minister on something, but you know, they need help understanding well, what's the right decision. And all I can do is set up the case for my members and they then make the decision. You know, that's, that's sort of the, the way I think we, we approach it. The other thing I would say is, again, not, not to big up Matt too much to give him a second mention, but the, you know, the Clean Heat Directorate at bay seem to really understand um, what needs to happen. Again, they, they, they're policy people. I think there's a couple of engineers, but mostly they're policy people. But when I've spoken with them, they, the sort of questions you get asked give you a good sense that you know, if, if I'm struggling to answer them because I need to go and speak to the members about some of the technical details, that's really reassuring. I think my my worry when I created the trade association was i'd go and speak to department for business and others and there wouldn't be a deep understanding of what was required and i think i'm pleasantly surprised just at how good the people working on this
1: are i will um yeah i t- i totally agree with that everyone i speak to at bays a has passion which usually if you've got means if you've got a bit of passion you're more invested in sort of learning a bit about this you know they're not just doing it as a as a job a day job and you know, some of the knowledge some of them have now, because some of some of these are quite wonky and very geeky and very mathematically in their own right, far far beyond my level. And once it clicks with them, sort of like the, some of the stuff, you know, they, they really do know their stuff. Some of them, and it's really really good. I mean, off gem, I know back in the day, sort of uh, they started to build a good team around energy. And like once again, you know, you would know off way way better than me. I mean, I have met some people from off I'd still. I still think they need to learn a little bit more about heat. And it was interesting you said about it to be a regulator of heat because obviously the obvious choice would be, I suppose, off-gen. I think they need to learn a little bit more about, um, especially within domestic situations. I mean, everyone thinks it's, a, it's just an easy task and it's just about training and upskilling. And, but as you've mentioned right at the beginning, you know, the consumer journey, I mean, the poor old consumer out there is literally waving <laughs> their finger in the air, whether it's retrofit, whether it's things like insulation, and, and, and definitely, whether it comes when it comes to finding, um, you know, a reliable heating engineer, and, and there's all sorts of problems. It's such a weird, complex problem because, rightly or wrongly, most of society, you know, it, me included, with certain aspects, uh, if, if I want to buy something, I usually want to buy get, get a good deal. And what we've done, or what this industry happens in has happened in this industry. Everyone wants a good deal, and that usually means they want it cheap. And if you want a really good experience and a really good install of a complex system, which Heating systems. are if they want to work. If you want them to work efficiently, you know, you got to realise there's a value to that, um, and that's a behavioural challenge. But yeah, I mean, off Jim, um, when you were working with them, what, did you did you sort of get the sense that they were becoming a bit more aware of, of, of heat?
0: I think they are. They are now. Um, back in sort of 2017, when I would have been there, I don't think it was a big part of their thinking. I, I guess the caveat to that is that. Ofgem already does regulate heat. It just does it in a way that isn't what you and I think of as heat because they regulate the gas network and they regulate the electricity network and the transmission operator. So that essentially is part of the heating network. It's just the bit beyond the customer's house um, and and, and, a a non-domestic building. So I think that's actually something they already do. And some of the questions there would be things like, well, should you build more gas grids? I mean, that is a heating question. Um, what you know, what what should what should the connection process be um, for gas or for new um, low carbon electricity? That's that's a heating question. So they already do some of this. I think the real transition for off-gen will happen when they take on the regulation of heat networks because all of a sudden they're going to regulate. 13,000 heat networks, I mean, you know, they're currently regulated around about 25 suppliers plus the DNOs and, and you know, there's some regulation of things like price comparison websites, but it's pretty light. Um, so moving to 13,000 heat networks will be a big, big change for them. And that will be getting into questions of like, what, what's, what did you agree in terms of your heat source? What happens if there's a problem with the heat source and, you know, the heat goes off? Um, whose responsibility is to fix it? Some of those questions are going to end up in economic regulation. I think that could be quite transformative for how Ofgem thinks about heat. That will come in 24, 25, subject to government legislation. Um, and then the question becomes, well, if you're regulating heat networks, which will make up 15 to 20 percent of the future UK heating system, what about the other 80, 85 percent? And there, I think then the question becomes, should Ofgem do the rest of it as well? Um, but they will need more people, I think, to do that if they're going to regulate both heat and the existing suppliers, plus all the rest of the grid, there would be more people in there to, to take on that role.
1: Mm, and, and talking about Bayes, I mean, I was talking to two high up senior people in Bayes within just the heat network teams. And yeah, that, they are really smart cookies in two lads I'm thinking of. That, this is where I see some of the technology you represent. So, we, um, so I know um, the team at Sunamp quite well and, and phase change material it's, you can scale this up so you can actually have containers full of it and you can ship it around so you can – and I don't want to get too technical for people on listening, so if they want to look up how it actually works, you know, go on to Sunamp's um, website or something. And, but you can actually shift heat. So you can have heat. Um, you can put, be putting heat into this phase change material and then you can actually transport it to other places in the country. So you could actually hook it up into a heat network. So you, these sort of thermal storage, you, you know, a thermal storage, thermal storage is a battery. I know we yes. always associate batteries with electrons, don't we? But it's um, thermal storage, whether it's water, your warm stone technology, or your or your phase change material technology, they're batteries, and you can move them about qu- quite easily and hook them up into heat networks. I mean, it's something an area I don't know is is all about this sort of generation and time shift and different price tariffs. But you know, it makes sense if you can get really really cheap electricity. To store it somehow in the form of heat, and then put that somewhere that needs it um, on a particular day, um, or, or even store it for a long time. Like some of these technologies can actually store it for quite quite a good lengthy time compared to water, can't they?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's, um, that's, that's what I mean, these, these products, Sunamp and, and the other two members, Tepper and Koldera as well, they do give you more flexibility in how you operate the grid and how you get heating into the home. Um, as you say, like you can actually transport it in a very physical sense in some cases as well. Um, I think the other thing is you're getting new people with new perspectives coming into the sector I mean I, I've got nothing bad to say about anybody who's doing their best to try and make the heating system you know, better and making the energy system work better and you're know, trying to get to net zero and keep costs down those are all things that everyone's trying to do I think that's you know, there's very few people in the sector who aren't trying to make that happen um, but you know what these what these members are doing you've got people coming in who've got experience in other in other areas you know um, Andrew, Andrew Bissell you works at Sunamp, CEO at Sunamp, Sunamp. um, you know, had a whole different career before he entered into uh, the, you know, working on working on hate. You know, he was working, I think, on uh, sort of medical imagery. That was like a previous company he had and sold that and then was looking at, you know, what was the next thing he was going to do? Uh, you could say the same for for Johan at Tepeo and you could say the same for James at Caldera. Like they had other parts of their career and they said well what am I going to spend my time on Where's the... And, and that's one of the great things about these companies is that they're really passionate about trying to, to make these changes happen make the system better you know and provide heat in the way that is going to be the future um, ra- rather than you know what maybe has happened in the past um, and that's actually really it's, it's great for me to work with those people I, I should say like this is one of the things that was really, really impressive at places like Bulb, and I suspect it's similar the way it is at Octopus now, um, as well, is that you've got people who are super passionate and, you know, but also very, very tech savvy, um, working right the way, uh, you know, across the company. And these are, they're having to sort of be a bit bootstrapped in the way they operate, but bootstrap means hiring in somebody with a PhD who will answer the door if you've got a guest, but then go back to doing you know, sophisticated product design. Um, and that means they've got a much better understanding of the full end to end spectrum of what they're trying to do. One of the sort of downsides looking back at my time at British Gas was that because a company like British Gas is so big, one of the big things you spend your time doing is coordinating, because like the expertise, you've got someone really skilled over there, there's someone really skilled over there, there's someone really skilled over there, geographically and in terms of like what they know. Trying to bring that together is really hard, um, so you kind of need a mix. I think you need the scale of those big companies to make this technology get out there, um, at mass and do it well, but you also need people coming in with new ideas and uh, different perspectives and you know just different histories who can then scale up and you know, really really deliver. So. It's, it's quite exciting. It's,
1: it's great working with yeah, them. It always interests me. I've with, 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 I mean, i I've been giving British Gas a bit of grief, actually, on Twitter recently. But you know, I know for a fact they've got wonderful people working within it. And it just seems so strange that they've got a brand. They've got a very, very well-recognized consumer brand. So that's a great asset. So you can do something with that. And they would only have to do a few little tweaks here and there to be able to offer something really, really, really good. And for some reason, that's not happening. And I'm going to talk about the eco bit here because, and like I say, I don't know really too much about the off-gems and the process and how it all works. But f- from my thinking, what you've got, you've got a, a, an energy supplier, British Gas. They go in and put a boiler. So they actually install boilers as well. They've got that set up as well. They actually got a, they own high thermostats as well. Now, a lot of people are now starting to learn about low-temperature heating systems. But it's not new. It's, this is physics. You know, You've never had to have a really hot radiator to heat a room—that's just physics. Um, there, there was reasons why we had to have hot flow temps years and years ago. And that's to sort of make uh, the water thermo siphon around the system pre-pumps before we had pumps. You also had to have hot uh, water to prevent uh, condensation, um, condensate destroying your water jacket uh, in your boiler. Uh, but now that we've got um, condensing boilers, th- these are the low temp And what's been happening, especially with the eco, the energy company's obligation. So all these energy supplies have been part of this boilers going into people's homes. And they've been going in at high temperature. They've been going in with no modulation control. So the high thermostat, which is owned by British Gas, is just an on-off stat. I know it's got geofencing. And so these systems, especially for the fuel port, which is this is supposed to help, are actually not working great at all. And that's, if, you're sub- if you're selling the gas as well, and you're selling a system and putting a system in that's not really as efficient as it should be, somewhere that's 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 just not right and offgem should be really looking at that and watching that i would have thought i mean i don't know what your thoughts are on that
0: yeah i, I guess i mean there's probably a couple of things there. i mean on the um the british gas points i i always tend to lean towards it would be more likely to be cock up than conspiracy um so i remember
1: me too, me too yeah no, um so I,
0: I suspect if there is any virtuous circle of installing Poorly operating uh, or not fully efficient—maybe a better way of saying it—gas um, uh, boilers, and then being able to sell more gas because they aren't operating as efficient as they should be. I suspect that's unconscious. Um, certainly, when I was there, I can you. Know, completely say that it was never a discussion. Now, I worked on some of the eco-regulation, uh, you know, speaking to off-jimbatten-bays about how that would work um, back in 2012-2013. We never had any conversation about let's try and do this inefficiently. <laughs> so it was all very much focused on trying to keep cost down and I suspect, certainly on the retail part of Brick's gas you'd want to make sure the boilers are running efficiently because if you're installing and fuel, fuel poor people's homes, they're the ones who create bad debt. They're the ones who don't pay. They're the ones you end up spending money chasing and eventually you know, putting prepayment meters and stuff in. So I suspect, um, yeah, the, it might just be the two things not joining up, like the, the engineers who are installing it with the rest of the business. Um, but it, I think it is a, there is a problem there that you, the incentives perhaps aren't there for people to investigate a bit deeper in terms of what's going in. I mean, eco is a scheme. Um, also gets a bit of a kicking i think and I, I think there's a little bit of fairness to that i think there's some there's definitely some design flaws within eco you know one two and three eco four should be better i think every scheme has been better than the predecessor one and you know, eco four is going to target uh, you know D, E, F, G, and uh separated buildings rather than being open to potentially C's um in particular who don't necessarily need the extra work um they're going to adopt a whole house approach i think that's a you know, much more sensible way of doing things because while it might increase costs i think with As 2035 we've begun to see some of those cost increases it should reduce heat loss and maintain ventilation in a better way so i think it's getting better i think the other thing with eco is that it has delivered improvements in 2.3 million homes so It perhaps isn't optimal, the way it's done that. It may be that there's some homes, for instance, have had two boiler replacements under eco schemes. I mean, that just seems ridiculous. I mean, if you've got a boiler that's six or seven years old installed in 2014, replacing it in 2021, you're not going to get any efficiency benefit out of that. And the boiler probably wasn't working badly anyway. It might not be working as efficiently as it could have been, but you're not going to see a big improvement in your your bills um, or or, or reduction in your carbon. so I think yeah, there's a there's definitely more we could do. I think we could build on what's there with eco, and obviously one of the big things you know, right now the bills going up to two thousand eight hundred, two thousand nine hundred pounds this winter. It's a this we we should really have been spending the last four or five months doing as many energy efficiency upgrades as we could as a country and it's very frustrating to watch and see that the ECO4 regulations still haven't been laid. So if you're, you know, there's, so you can't kick on if you're EDF or EON or Bulb or British Gas, it's very hard for you to start doing those whole house retrofits that you need to and want to under ECO4 and will be incentivized to do because the regulations aren't laid. So we're kind of just treading water in the middle of this crisis and not doing the main thing we should be, and instead relying on essentially billions of pounds worth of taxpayers' money going out as handouts to everybody, um, like the Chancellor's statement a couple of weeks ago, that whole thing just seems like suboptimal <laughs> in comparison to what we could have done with the last six months.
1: Yeah, I mean, its I, I always wondered that the whole house approach obviously makes sense, but it is a buzzword. You know, the whole mm. this whole house is, is getting banded around willy-nilly and it's complex you know if you're going to do a whole house uh, that's that's complex and and retrofit is complex anyway so insulation is complex so all this stuff that's gone in under eco most of it is never performance tested so no one ever does a measurement of what the home needs heat wise before the insulation goes in and no one ever does a measure they they do the sat they write down the u values what the insulation is and then everyone thinks oh lovely jubbly we've gone up a little bit on our epc but that's not a performance test and there is some performance testing going on that's actually showing and proving that some of these insulation measures haven't really done anything at all and we're talking vast sums of money that's so if we are going to have these initiatives to sort of to do all this stuff we've got to really start thinking about it as a science I and mean, it's got to be done properly and we need the systems and processes in place to make sure it's done properly i mean going back to the economic incentives for british gas i, I totally agree with you i don't think it's some sort of conspiracy However, where is the economic incentive? When So there, if you look at the insurance, so when I met my daughter's mother, uh, she was paying £440 per year to British Gas in case her boiler broke down. £440. I can buy a new boiler just a little bit above that. And that hadn't actually ever been serviced for two years. And yeah. the other thing is, they aren't ever serviced. They are just safety checks. So anyone that's worked for British or these big glass companies... They will just go around, stick what they call a magic wand in. you take the flue gas analyzer, You'll take a read in. It says it's safe away you go. They're not proper services. So what happens is eventually that boiler will break down and they come around and they've got a new one in because the economic incentive is for that boiler to break down. If boilers didn't break down, they couldn't sell insurance packages. No one's going to pay £440 a year just you know, out of the fear factor of their boiler might break down. If everyone's boilers lasted for 10, 15 years, no one would be buying their insurance packages. So even though I agree it's not conspiracy, there is some strange economic incentives with some of these suppliers. And I think I think ECO has to be looked at really, really stringently now. I think the way Ofgem uh, runs it or regulates it has to be really sort of uh, considered as well. Because you could easily argue within three iterations of ECO, I, I don't think it's been great. Yes, it's been good for putting and uh, creating awareness, putting these measures out there. But, yeah, it hasn't been great. And I think you can flower up as much as you want people out there. I'm not, <laughs> not saying you, Tom. But, know, yeah, people will flower it up and say, oh, yeah, it's done this, done that. But realistically, when people look back on in, in the past, I don't think it's been great. I think it could be much, much better. You know, these are the – oh, th- yeah. we're talking about the energy suppliers here and they could have done such a good, good thing. Um, simple things, low-temperature heating going You know, make sure that boilers low temperature and modulates. Never happened across the board. Never happened.
0: I totally agree, I, mean, I think like my, my take on eco is it's probably still uh, sort of like a B minus. Um, some people might think I was generous, but that's sort of why I would say it is. It's, it's certainly not the you know it's not an A game uh, sort of scheme. i um, <laughs> and, and I think like some of the incentives there are definitely some incentive problems. I mean, I would say like the bold bulb team who ran eco were superb, like excellent people, really good, very bright, very young. They're going to have great careers. Um, you know, but there was a point. Like five of them working on it. And you know, that was that was, it was a very small team. And the incentives financially, Bulb could not put money into creating a bigger team that went outside and did uh, you know checks of this stuff. You know, in an alternative world, you could see Bulb hiring people in, or any energy spot it doesn't have to be bulb, hiring people in to go and do those, those tests and checks and make sure their supply chain is, is operating in the right way. But in reality, you you don't the incentive is to sell energy as cheap as possible and to try and you know grow your company or to keep your company at a certain size, have people not switch away. So you don't have those tests and checks happening. You're relying instead on third parties to do that or for things to be picked up across the industry and then being resolved. So I think the incentives, you're right, the incentives aren't as well aligned as they as they could be. And some of this does just come down to you know, trying to keep costs as low as possible, which perhaps isn't leading to the most optimal outcomes. Um, and that's probably a, a, a overly positive way of phrasing that. Um, and I think the other thing is, like, this is skilled work. So if you're going to get skilled people working on it, um, you know, in the home, and as you put these measures in, you need to pay a price for that. You need to, you know, it's it's not going to, you can't do it cheap and get the skilled outputs. So those two things just won't happen at the same time. You need to make sure you've got good skilled people putting in good quality bits of bits of kit.
1: Yeah, you, 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 with the insulation measures, I'll, I, I would agree with that. With the, with the boilers that have been going, every single boiler insulation company that's been putting them in could easily have put them in properly, like low temp modulation controls. It's just, it's just been, and, and trust me, on the first it range, they were making good, I know people that have become millionaires out of that, insulation companies, millionaires. I know insulation companies that were putting in insulation in that thought, oh, it's now gone on to heating, we'll do that as well. And they became very, very rich and let's get it right let's get it right it's not rocket well I, i'm always saying heating is is more complex than rocket science but doing a good job isn't rocket science and they haven't done a good job it's as simple as that in, 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 and it could be done a lot lot better bulb yeah they do have some i mean i used to talk with bulb they were uh, as you would probably know they were going to be getting involved in the heat pump game and we chat to me quite regularly and um so that's a shame um uh, and some of the other suppliers used <laughs> to chat me they've got a bit quiet i think they were, i think they're all waiting to see how it goes uh for octopus if i'm honest they want to see how it all uh pans out for them um going back to the technologies of uh, the the thermal storage do, do just explain to some of our listeners how, how how some of this works
0: well i think if i was to keep it really simple and keep it high level um essentially the, the thermal stores can either work with heat pumps or they can work instead of heat pumps and if they're working with a heat pump um, you know the heat pumps creating the the heat so it could be sort of thermal here as well um, and then the the heat pump the, so the thermal store itself is storing that heat, so you can use it later. So um, in an ideal situation, what you'd have is really good flexibility on the power system, you'd have tariffs that reflect that, so if you've got a load of wind being generated or a load of solar, that means that prices will be low, and that's a good time to charge up your thermal store. sounds quite similar to some of the conversations you have about EVs and and, and, uh, electrochemical batteries. Um, So you use that cheap energy, you, you store it up in terms of heat, and then you use it later. If you're um, using something which is like, a, like the, the, the uh, tepio or the Caldera products, um, they use sort of direct electric resistance heating. Um, to, to you put you put some electricity into it, uh, you then create the heat. You then supercharge up uh, you know, an internal mass, um, and uh, you can store temperature, you know, really high temperatures for three, four, 500 degrees Celsius so sort of temperatures, really, really high temperature, um, something that you can then use later. So the concept's very similar of storing heat for later. Um, and there's two options for that heat. One is you can use it for hot water, which there's always demand for all through the year because we're always running hot taps, we're always having chars, we're always having baths, we're always running washing machines or dishwashers. So there is a base load, if I use that language, um, around, around hot water heating and then of course for about five six months of the year you've got this huge space heating demand as well um, which you know, again you, having this, this sort of ability to shift when you're charging up and then drawing down that heat should if we get the system bit right the power system be bit, um, uh, bit right mean that you're as consumers overall we're saving money because we're not having to invest as much in Grid infrastructure in um, constrained payments to wind generators. Um, it should mean that we do this at lower cost than if we, you know, than some of the alternative ways you could decarbonize it. The now,
1: does it um, is it relying on though this 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 notion that there's going to be cheap electricity at certain times? I does. I mean, does the technology re- rely on that?
0: Well, I think I mean one of the differences between the products that you know thermal storage products that uh, thermal storage UK represents is that. The maximum efficiency you can get out of them is 100% efficiency. So if you put in one kilowatt hour of electricity, you get one kilowatt hour uh, of, of heat out the other end. So that's different to a heat pump, where you know the efficiencies can be two, three, four times as much, uh, depending on you know, time of year, setup, and everything else. And you, uh, coefficients of performance can go higher than that. So I think that's that's the sort of primary difference between the products. Um, if in the heat pump, you're going to run pretty constantly but you're going to have overall lower kilowatt hours demand than you would do of gas because of that 200 300 efficiency with thermal storage products when they're running like this you need to have those flexible tariffs to really get the, the financial benefit you get the carbon benefits because running off electricity will be better than running off uh, of natural gas yeah. But you know, people aren't going to pay three, four, or five times as much. I suspect for that benefit, they're going to need to see the financial uh, side of it as well, and that's where the the flexible tariffs would, would really come in.
1: So, I suppose as an association, you you keep a very, very good BDI on on what them tariff prices are doing. I suppose, don't you?
0: Yeah. So we well. It's as much I think it's a system problem. This um, so energy suppliers aren't really offering flexible tariffs. Um, I mean, Octopus do offer flexible tariffs, but you know, as they will repeatedly tell you, they're doing that at a loss, they're sort of artificial the way they're designed, because the system isn't giving them the right signals, isn't giving anybody the right signals, and that covers a whole range of things like network charges, the lack of half-hourly settlement for domestic customers. That, yeah, I could run down a list of about seven or eight things that would potentially need to change. And I think they are changing. You, you, Off-Gem's looking at things like distribution charges. They're looking at things like transmission charges. Um, balancing charges are changing. All these things are shifting because essentially the grid in five years' time—I mean, the grid today—but in particular, if you look five, ten years down the line, is radically different to what we had ten years ago. Because. And, you know, this—I'm this not saying anything new here. When I say that previously you would get a set amount of demand and you would change your generation um, to match that demand, so you say turn off a coal power plant or turn it back on again. In future, we're going to have a set amount of uh, generation, and then the question is, well, what do you do with the demand? Like, mm. you can potentially bring more generation on, which might be gas, if it—you know—in particular, is I think would still be a marginal player there. But you can also do more on the demand side because people will have EVs. They will have plenty batteries and they will have potential things like thermal stores. And obviously, if they've got efficient houses, you can also use the, the fabric of the building, the envelope of the building um, as a bit of flexibility as well. But you can use a bit of preheating um, with a heat pump to, uh, to get some flex. <laughs>
1: that, that was a conversation on Twitter actually this week, I think. It's, it's, it's not my first idea, um, but there you go it's it's interestingly so so obviously i'm I'm known for sort of known the very sort of really sort of high end engineers and and I will say to my listeners they they are all familiar or becoming familiar with the technologies I'm talking about within the association and and the build quality they reckon is second to none so for instance if we talk about um sanamp i I know a very 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 good engineer who. Well, I think he's been banned from Twitter because his language is is pretty colourful. He says it how it is, but he really, really likes the build quality of Sunamp. And if he says it's good, the build quality is good. Simple as that. And then I've had a couple of engineers that have been on my podcast quite regularly. They've gone down to um, uh, Tepio and they really, really liked it. And, uh, well, actually one of them's done an install. I don't know if if, if that's been publicly announced they've done that install yet, but um, he's done an install and, and is really quite impressed with the technology and it's an op and like we we've always said on the podcast you know there's no panacea for the for the consumers there's options and sometimes you're going to need all sorts of different options um and this 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 does tick a box for providing a a, a good little option i mean i don't Uh, know too much about this time of use stuff i should do i should read up more about it and and where it's going i mean you've just said some positive things there that you know things are changing for the for the better um so that's good
0: yeah, I think it's, I mean, for all these things, you, you want them to move faster. Um, yeah. you know, I think if you're, I've only I've been, you know, back in the, i left the energy sector for a couple of years to go and work on water, as you mentioned uh, in the introduction, and when I came back, like, people were still pushing fl- the flexibility side of things, which they had been when I left two, about two years previously, um, and we're sort of now seeing the fruits of that, you know, so other people have done this work, and, you know, OVO have been pushing this, Octopus have pushed this, there's lots of organisations out there who've been trying to make the flexibility point and i think the recognition is now there i think the the review of electricity market arrangements this summer will also be a really big turning point point. i don't want to you know any regulatory review or policy review isn't necessarily you know as you say like a panacea um to to solve these things but that's a big strategic piece of work looking at well what do we need in the future market what do we need if we do decarbonize through electricity what do we do if we do end up with 10 15 million evs on the road in 2030 we're going to need a different system than the one we built back in the 90s um system in terms of the, the the policy and strategy arrangements the market arrangements that go around it um, but you also will need a different physical system. You're going to need much more monitoring all the way down into the, the low-voltage part of the network than, than we have today. And a lot of the DNOs are beginning to realise that and have been for a few years, and they're building up their understanding of what's happening, you know, sort of transformer level. Um, and similarly, if in the home, you're going to need more monitoring. It's not going to be like, you know, put a boiler in and assume it's operating at 85 90% efficiency and the person's going to use it by tweaking their radiators with, a t- you know, TRVs and stuff like that. That approach won't work. You'll need to have much better monitoring of the efficiency of the system, whether or not it's operating in the right way, and what it does at peak at peak times because it's the peaks here. Like a lot of the analysis you see is about averages. um The reason flexibility is really important is because it's about your peaks, and if you get the peaks wrong, that kind of affects like you know voltage flickering and things like that. Which um, that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, but it could mess up some people's technology and some of their computers and stuff like that which wouldn't be ideal and in the worst case now you get you know trip outs which you don't want either um so getting it right for peaks is is the absolute name of the game here and that's why you need a good flexible market
1: Mm, i was watching robert um being interviewed by michael liebright on the cleaning up podcast last night actually and they were talking a little bit about the peaks and I suppose it's worth mentioning. You know what? This is why um, octopus are doing really good things around. This, you know, really driving home that the system needs changing for for the better. Um, which is which is something octopus are really really good at. They have come in and basically said, "You know, let's disrupt this because it's n- disrupting." Which it does, doesn't it? Um, yeah, you know, I give I give them. I don't give them a hard time. I'll give, I'll, I'll give them a few little digs over the heating aspect of it just to make sure they're doing it right. But they are. I mean, they they are doing good things. Um, bless them. So, Tom, it's, uh, it's been wonderful to chat to you. I mean, yeah, you mentioned uh, you were part of OffWatt, and f- so we could talk for ages about plumbing and the fact that, um, well, you yeah, know, I mean, they were the sort of economical regulator, but, uh, you know, the fact that lots of people are still drinking lead in the water, but we won't go on that one.
0: Perhaps <laughs> <laughs> another time, that one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so what, uh, what is the sort of the next step? Are you, as a trade association, do you look for new members? What How does that work? I know you've got your big three founders, who, who I know uh, very well. What, what? What goes on there? Can anyone join your trade association, or have they got been thermal storage, or associated with thermal storage? So we've um, the first three or four
0: months we've basically been
1: focusing on getting
0: everything set up and running and running smoothly. Um, I mean, I think any trade association you need to be open for people to apply for membership. So it's working out the criteria, or actually that's something we're currently just sort of finalising. Actually, within the membership, um, is what would a membership application look like? I mean, high level, you you need to support smart. Uh, thermal storage um then there'll be other things other criteria below that but uh, and also willing of course to pay the membership fee uh which you know so sometimes membership fees you know put people off uh so i think there are some criteria we are you know if people want to get in touch with me they can um, do drop me a line even if that's just to chat about thermal storage or if you want to have an intro to some of the members understand more of their products um, we're very, very open. Um, so, uh, you know, get get in touch, and uh, whether well, that's just to understand the products or potentially to inquire about membership.
1: And and, and with membership, so obviously, a, a lot of associations, trade associations, are, are just manufacturer only, uh, and that's one of the one of the reasons why the Heat Pump Federation set itself up because it it realised there's all different sorts of cohorts out there. You know, they might be housing associations, or they might be engineers. Sometimes have their own associations they join, but so. So, can will you have different types of membership, or is it just for manufacturers that manufacture your stuff, or could like housing associations for instance become members because that's something that they want to implement in their own sort of um, properties
0: so I think i mean it's obviously it would be a subject to, to to the board to make a final decision on that, but I, mean, I, I suspect what we do is we'd look at what sort of membership applications we have so so far. I'd say we've had inquiries, not applications, from maybe six or seven different organizations um, all over the globe, actually. It, was, it surprised me. I wasn't expecting inquiries from India and, and the Nordic countries, but that uh, is what I've, uh, what I've had. And um, they're mostly manufacturers. Um, so I think that you know, maybe they've seen who, is, um, who are members and they've thought, okay, well, it's primarily end of manufacturers. But Anyway, you know, if we had uh, energy suppliers, consumer organizations, uh, housing associations, applying or being interested in applying i think we'd have to think about well what does that mean should we have a membership criteria that works for them but um i, I guess at the moment it's quite binary it's like you either a sort of fuller associate member which the different sort of rights and associated with it um or you can be added to a mailing list where we'll give you a sort of very occasional update about what we're doing um we might in the future who knows we could have other criteria
1: brilliant brilliant tom it's been great chatting to you as always and uh I think my listeners would have found that all very interesting. We've covered all sorts of things there, haven't we? We've had me (laughs) go on about eco as usual. Um, Yeah, thanks so much for Tom. Thank you for joining me on on Beta Talk. Excellent. Thank you, Nathan. Cheers.
0: This episode was brought to you by Farnell, your global distributor of electronic components, products, and solutions. Visit farnell.com.